The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. In our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over ev- all of earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves over the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God had finished this work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is God's work. Thank you, Stacy. As we enjoy Labor Day weekend, um, we're invited to rest from our work. That's what today is. We're invited, as we rest from our work, to appreciate work as well. We're reflecting on the blessing of work itself. So I thought it fitting to spend one Sunday uh, talking about faith and work and rest before we launch into our fall series that starts next week through the books of First and Second Thessalonians, which we're really excited about. Uh, the Bible has much to say about work. A lot to say, but maybe not in the way that you think. Uh, Many people think of the Bible as a a book of moral teachings about different topics and stories throughout the Bible that reflect uh, that teaching and point to those little stories. And so if you want to learn about work, you might read a parable of the talents and being f- what it means to be a good steward and faithfulness of faithful uh, steward of what God has given to us. If you want to learn about forgiveness uh, for people who have wronged you, you might read a story about Joseph. Uh, if you want to learn about endurance in the face of difficulty, you might read about Nehemiah in the Old Testament. If you want to learn about courage in the midst of suffering, maybe you'll learn about the life of the Apostle Paul, who spent much of his ministry in prison. But the Bible is much more than that. It's much more than a collection of stories and moral teachings. The Bible is a unified story, the unified true story of how God brings about his purposes in the world with hundreds of teachings that all point to the one true story of God and his purposes for the world. And when we read the Bible in this way, we realize that all those different teachings and all those different moral teachings are there to point to the one true unified story of God. And then we'll begin to see how all the compartments of our life fit into God's plan. All the compartments and categories like work and family, relationships, politics, leisure, recreation, celebration, all of those balls that we juggle throughout our life When we start to see God's story as a unified story, it all starts to fit into place. 
Let me say it another way in the form of a question as we think of work. Are we lawyers and doctors and realtors and teachers and homemakers and electricians who happen to be Christian? Or are we lawyers and doctors and realtors and teachers and homemakers and electricians who are shaped by God's story? Are we people in our vocations that are formed? And do we operate within the context of our vocation as people who are formed by God's story? Rather than I happen to have this as a job and I also happen to be a Christian, how do I have balance between the two? So to frame our teaching this morning, we'll look at the two different stories, two different stories in our culture and society about work. We'll look at how our view of work will reflect which story we live in. And lastly, we're going to see a new motivation for rest, an invitation to rest. First, let's look at the two stories that shape our view of work. When it comes to telling the story of work, our culture really tells two stories and are strongly influenced by two different stories. The first story is what I'll refer to as the story of Darwinism. Now, as Darwinism, I'm not referring to the scientific theory of evolution, but rather to the story that aims to tell us how does a person come to live a fulfilling life? How does a person look in their life and say, I have purpose, I have meaning, I have dignity and value? And the world says, like Darwin believed and insisted, that we come to live fulfilling lives by mastering our surrounding. Our lives are only valuable to the degree that we contribute to the success of society. And so in this story, we use technology and science and any means possible to engage in cutthroat competition with people around us. We do whatever we need to do to climb the ladder, to be great, to succeed, to produce because that's where we find our value. That's the story of our culture. The story of Darwinism is about aggressively seeking to triumph over competition, walking over whomever we need to in order to get to the top of the ladder. The story tells us that the purpose of our lives is to win, to be great as the world defines greatness, to be first, to be superior, to be second to no one. It is the belief of our modern philosopher Ricky Bobby, right? That if you're not first, you're last, okay? This is the story of our culture. If you're not first, you're last. And the worst thing that you can do in a Darwin society, let somebody get in the way of being the version of yourself that you believe you should be. And the worst thing you could do is to let somebody tell you what story you should live. And you can see that as we gather what Darwinism is just in this very brief, brief summary of the story, that it doesn't only shape work. It shapes every area of our society. It shapes politics. It shapes ethics concerning the unborn. It shapes our immigration policies and many other parts of our society. And living by this story will overflow into adopting certain kinds of values. Living in this story will adopt a value of individualism, individual free one, freedom. No one tells me, no one can tell me what to do or how to think or how to live. I'm my own person and I live by my own rules. Ironically, it also leads to the opposite of individual freedom, which is oppression. It, leaves, it leads to slavery of the weak. If we believe in a story that we are created to master our environment, then those who are weakest in our environment will always be oppressed. 
If we live in a society or even view our work as if my goal in life is to climb that ladder and walk over the competition, then those who have less than us will always suffer. They'll be marginalized, they'll be murdered, they'll be enslaved, they'll be abused. It leads to consumerism, treating people only for the good of us. We treat people and things simply as a means to the end of our purpose, to get where we're going. And so people are no longer relationships and people to love. They are people to be used and discarded when we're done using them. That's one story of work. Let's look at the other story. The other story, of course, is the biblical story of work. The biblical story of work. This is the story in our passage that was read from Genesis chapter 1. And what the rest of the Bible really tells us about the story in which we live. The one true story of God that really is the story of the whole universe. Many people think that work is what you have to do in order to get what you want to do. Right? So I work in order to, to get a life that I want to have. That's the only reason we work. We, we have to do this so that we get to do the things we want to do. And maybe something... Uh, All of us have said at one point, perhaps, when talking to our children, if that fits for us, child asks, why do you always have to go to work? To which you respond, do you like wearing the clothes that you wear? Do you like to eat every day? Do you like going on vacation? Do you want to sleep outside? Do you want a Nintendo Switch? Now stop asking ridiculous questions. Daddy or mommy's got to go to work so that we can get the things that we want. Does it sound like you? Does it sound like your story? Of course, if we don't work, we don't eat. We know that. But there's a deeper purpose to our work than just doing what we have to do in order to do what we want to do. In the biblical conception of work, all work is intrinsically good, not because of what it produces, but because of who it reflects, because of the design and character of who God is and what he's invited us into as people who are specifically made in his image. The Bible throughout tells us that God created the material world. Not only did he create it, but he created it intentionally with purpose and power and beauty and order. He loves it. And and we see in our passage, he loves it and he called it good. He looks at it and says, this is good. And one day he's going to redeem it and make it perfect again, but better than it ever was before. And then he brings humankind into it. He invites us into it. He calls humankind who are made in his image to imitate him as workers, as creators, to cultivate the material world that he has created. Genesis tells us the story of work, and here it is. That all work is taking what God has created and cultivating it for the purpose of singing God's praises and the flourishing of humankind. This is why he created it, to enjoy him, to sing his praises, and to cause the flourishing of our neighbor. You see, we learn so much about the view of God's creation and a view of his, of his work and why he created it, just in these few verses in the, in the beginning of the Bible. God not only loves humankind, he not only loves us, but he put us in the midst of his beautiful creation that he, that he made, and he's given us everything that we need He loves the world and wants to serve the world so well that he puts man and woman in that world to cultivate it, to garden it, 
and to from it produce something that blesses us and blesses others and, and praises God. God is the worker creator. Created work to demonstrate his love for the good of others. God made, made humans to love him and to love neighbor throughout our daily work. And in this way, we'd be participating in God's ongoing providence and his ongoing reflection of love for his people. In creating us to be workers, he's creating us to truly know him. To truly know him in a hands-on kind of way. Uh, It's a reason why God did not invent or create a bread tree. Stay with me for a second. He didn't. He, if he, he created man and woman to live on bread, but he didn't create a bread tree. He created seeds and soil and sunlight and water and nutrients. He created these things so that we would discover them and cultivate them and create bread out of them so we can feed our neighbor and praise God. He didn't create a bread tree. It's amazing that in Genesis 1, not only do we see a God who works, but we see a God who really, really enjoys doing that. Really, really enjoys working. Verse 31 to 2, 1, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, all the host of them. And God stands back and he says, Nice. Nice. I like that. I like what I did here. This is good. Like anyone who steps back from their hard work, the work of their hands, they see themselves in it, right? You ever done something really white? You ever, you ever really, really good? You ever done a Pinterest project and you just nail it? And you stand back and you say, nice. Why? Because it reflects you. You don't look at it and say, well, this will really help our day. You, know? like, you don't look back and say, this will be really effective and cut down our work time. No, you do it because you are overflowing of your creativity and your love. And you look at it and you enjoy it because you say, this is a reflection of my ability. That's awesome. It's a reflection of who I am. And so work is not merely, here's the biblical story, work is not merely a means to an end, but an essential part of paradise. Work was created as an essential part of paradise. It is perfectly clear that from the beginning, work would be a part of God's perfect design for life. Because we were made in God's image to reflect who he is, and he is a worker. He is a creator. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, you've obviously never worked a day in my job. (laughs) Maybe, maybe so. All of work is an essential part of paradise, but all work is also cursed and broken and and a result of living in a broken and sinful world and, and, and some jobs more obvious than others. Yet it's possible to engage in our work, no matter what your job is, not according to the biblical story, but to a different story, to our world story. And God calls his people to live according to the biblical story of work for the praise of God and the good of others no matter what your job is. And so let's look at this next thing about we look at our view of work reflects which story we actually are living in. Use this as a, as a diagnostic 
tool for you to think about which story am I living in? Because the other story, the world's story, pounds it into our heart and minds at every turn. Consume, use, climb the ladder, build your resume, and don't worry about who you walk over to get there. And we believe it. And we say, that seems like the way to go. God invites us into a different story. You see, work is such a huge dimension of life, isn't it? It's where we spend most of our time. It takes up an enormous amount of our time, an enormous part of our life, decades of work, a lifetime of work. And because of that, it becomes very tempting for us to look for our identity there. It's the thing we do the most. Of course, it's so tempting then to say, this is who I am. This is where my identity is. It's in this work that I do. And so the biblical story invites us to see God in his awesome glory and greatness and goodness and then see God showing his children that we have in him all that we need for life. The biblical story tells us that God is awesome in mercy for us, that even though he made a perfect world for us to enjoy, we made a mess of it and we ruined it and we chose to rebel against God and we ruin the good that he created. He reconciles us to himself through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He brings us back into good standing with him. He promises he'll restore creation. And he's awesome in wisdom for us. He's awesome in power for us through the Holy Spirit. He's awesome in love for us. He's awesome in patience for us. And the grace of God through Jesus Christ connects us to him by his grace, and it frees us, therefore, from looking anywhere else for our identity. Because God has brought us into relationship with Jesus and says, I have everything that you need. You don't need to go anywhere else to find who you are, to find value, to find dignity, to find purpose. Because if you have it in me, then work no longer becomes that thing for you. In God's awesome grace poured out for us in Jesus, we really do find everything we need. We don't need to look for purpose for our life outside of Jesus Christ. We don't need to look for definition of who we are outside of Jesus. We don't have to look for inner peace or, or, or um, serenity or value outside of Jesus Christ because in Christ we find all things. This is the gospel story. But it's very tempting to look for those things, our value, our dignity, our peace, our serenity, our comfort, our security in work. Here are a few phrases that reflect a view of work that has forgotten the gospel story. Here's the first one. I am what I have accomplished. I'll put it in the simplest terms. Success makes you feel like you don't need God. I mean, doesn't it? Have you ever done something really well, succeeded at work, had a really difficult challenge in front of you, and you just did great? And then you do it again, and you do really, really great again, and possibly you stand apart from the rest of your peers as one who is particularly successful in your field. A habit of success and achievement in your life seems to make a statement about the kind of person you are and what you are able to do. And the state, what statement is that exactly? That God's grace is better spent on people who need it more. Because you don't need it. Because you're just that kind of person. 
success is not bad. When we succeed, we are manifesting God's nature and character. But when we have a habit of success, what it does to our ego is it begins to condition us that we don't need God to get what we desire in this life. And when it comes to feeling secure in our identity, it's true to say that we are only as secure as our greatest treasure. And if our greatest treasure is our accomplishment, then we're only as good as our last success. We're only as secure as our our last accomplishment. And success will never be enough. It's like a drug addict. We need the next success to keep us going. And another success after that to feel just as good as before. And before we know it, success stops being that thing that used to just encourage us in the midst of our day, and it morphs into something that we cannot live without. Sounds like it's become God. I cannot live without it. It becomes an idol. It's something that we need And when it becomes the thing that we cannot live without, we begin to steal away time from the things that are really important in order to feed that idol. We steal time from our family. We steal time from our community of faith that God's called us to. We steal time from our friends. We steal time from our commitments to get closer to that next success that is just around the corner because we need it. And we need to serve that, whatever it may be. Have you bought into that story? Are you close to buying into that story? Do you see how you've stolen away from the the, the calling of your life and the good things just to get to that next success that you crave? Comes from a story that says, I am what I've accomplished. This is what makes me who I am. I need to succeed. And I can't handle it if I fail. Here's another thing, if I, haven't, if I haven't been heavy enough on you. I am what I have accumulated. When you think of a successful person, what comes to mind? Stuff. Good, class participation, who else? What else? What else is it? Stuff. A beautiful house, a beautiful car, a beautiful yard. I don't whatever your thing is, beautiful watches and wardrobes and shoes. Whatever your thing is. And of course, these things are not bad in themselves. How amazing it is that we can take the ingredients that God created, cultivate and produce something that brings us comfort and shelter and convenience. What a blessing. They're not evil in themselves. God created the physical world and he's given us the capacity to recognize and enjoy beautiful things. And because of that ability, it's possible to find our identity in a life that is filled with, okay, good, (laughs) beautiful things, beautiful things. We're made by our creator to have, just appreciate this, we're made by our good and beautiful creator to have an unmatched ability in all creation to make beautiful things. And we demonstrate our likeness with God when we appreciate beautiful things. But the moment that we attach our joy to that beautiful thing, we've become captivated by a story that is opposed to God's story. 
that's the moment we begin to believe the lie of the world's story. The moment we attach our joy to how many of those beautiful things we've accumulated. And we look at all those beautiful things and we say, I am what I have accumulated. Look at what I have done. I must be somebody special to God. Is that your story? I got one more. Here's the last phrase. I am in control. Maybe you're thinking, please stop. (laughs) We got to keep going because this story does not stop. And it it pounds it into our lives at every angle in our society. We need to do it. In a world where most of us might have people telling us what to do all the time, it is a thrill to be the one in control. It is a thrill to be the one in power. It is stimulating to be the one and say, now I get to tell you what to do. In a world that is vulnerable and unpredictable and scary, it's tempting to find comfort in trying to assure ourselves that we will never be caught off guard, that we can manipulate and control our environment and to work in such a way that whatever happens will work out for our benefit. But finding our identity in that story is a dangerous thing. Because self-sovereignty is not only a myth that we believe, but it leads to the opposite of what we're truly seeking. Self-sovereignty and self-sufficiency and self-control Rather than leading to peace that we desire, it leads to conflict, it leads to division, it leads to the oppression of people who are weaker than us. And people who find their identity and their ability to control the circumstances of their lives always leads to a trail of carnage behind them, of people that they ran over to get where they are of personal and spiritual and relational debris, like a tornado. The biblical story tells us that we are perfectly secure in the powerful hands of a God who loves us. The misplaced desire to find our identity in what we've accomplished, what we could accumulate, or who we control will make us workaholics. Here's what Paul Tripp says in his book, Awe. Workaholism is not a schedule problem, a gift problem, or an opportunity problem. It happens when the awe of God is replaced by the awe of something else. When I forget that God in all his awesome glory is all that he has done for me by grace, I will look for the life somewhere else other than in him. See, workaholism isn't just, oh, I just got to get a better schedule. I just got to, I got to, uh, you know, I just have to have better opportunities. You know, when, when I get a little bit more money, then I'll work, I'll, I'll, I won't be a workaholic. It's not about that. You've heard of work-life balance. Many of us try to get, well, I need a work-life balance. God did not create us to live a balanced life. God created us that our life would flow out of our identity in him. He created us to express his unique relationship with us and the joy that's found in knowing him. He doesn't say, Be good at your faith and be good at your work and be a balanced person. He says, let everything flow out of and be transformed by who I've called you to be and the relationship I've called you into. 
The way that we work is meant to express our unique relationship with God by his grace. Success is a very good thing. But when success becomes your savior, that is the place where you're looking for fulfilling life, then it becomes an idol that you worship that you can never be satisfied with. Do you find yourself in one of these three phrases? Do you find yourself enticed by one of these stories? Well, let me invite you into the Lord's rest as we finish up. A new motivation for rest. Think about this. If you see someone who just keeps pushing themselves and keeps never resting and always working and never a moment to rejuvenate, this might be a spouse, a friend, a coworker, or a family member. Your primary reason for telling them to rest is why? So that they don't burn out. You need to take a break or you're going to die. But that's not the main reason we rest. Mere rejuvenation is not the purpose of taking rest from work. How do we know? Here's the fascinating thing. Because God rested and was never tired. God rested and was never worn out. One of my favorite passages in scripture is from Isaiah 40. The Lord is an everlasting God, creator of the end of the earth. He does not faint. He does not grow weary. Then why is he resting? He doesn't sleep. He doesn't become exhausted. He never needs a day off. And yet he rested. So rest is not immediately or primarily tied to our, to our exhaustion. Why would God, who never grows weary or tired, have a need for rest? For the same reason that God, who has no need for food or shelter or possessions, work. To demonstrate the goodness of who he is for our joy. When we rest from our work on the Sabbath, which is Sunday for today's Christ followers, we are taking the same stand that God aimed to take when he rested. And that is a, that is a pro- proclamation of this, we are not slaves to our work. That's why God did it. We are not slaves to productivity. We are not slaves to money. We're not slaves to getting more. We're not slaves to making more. We are not slaves to being somebody. But we belong to God. When God liberated his people from Egypt, one of the first things he told them to do was take a day of health and do it every week. Why? Sabbath is a declaration of freedom. Sabbath rest is a weekly habit of reminding ourselves that we do not enter into soul rest through working our way to God, but through resting in his work for us. You see, our ability to Sabbath rest truly is an indication of our ability to rest in Jesus. Let me put it a different way. Our inability to rest from our work is an indication of our lack of discipline to truly find soul rest in Jesus' finished work for us. The discipline of rest is core to the life of a believer because the key to true rest is found in the gospel. Look Look at your life and look And if you look at your life long enough, you're going to see a lot of problems. All kinds of work that should be done in your life that you fail to do. All kinds of commands and the the person that God wants you to be that you have failed to become. And you're aware of your failures. You are aware of your failure to work as God has called you to work spiritually. 
You're aware of your shortcomings. You're aware of your record and your character that falls short. And in all of us, there's a sense of condemnation when we stand before God that says, I haven't done good enough. I haven't done a good job. I haven't done a good work. But there is hope, and the rest that God took, he gave to us, the rest that he took, points us to our hope that a physical day of rest will represent a deep and continual rest for God's people. At creation, God did all of his work, all of his striving, and then he rested. And at the cross, Jesus did all of the work that we failed to do so that we could rest in him. Jesus' perfect work in his life, death, and resurrection is the basis of our rest. So Sabbath rest is not a law to follow or an obligation to fulfill, but it's a discipline to practice. It is a gracious invitation from God to us to enjoy the gift of his rest. Our ability to rest from work is intimately tied to our ability to rest in the finished work of Jesus on the cross for us. Now, I'm not saying your boss calls you up on Saturday night and says, you have to come in. We got a lot of last-minute changes to our presentation for this big account. I need you to come in Sunday morning to meet with the team. You should not say, sorry, Jesus is my rest, (laughs) right? But it does mean that no longer do you need to feel paralyzed by your performance, by what people think of you, by your achievement or success, by your ability to control your circumstances of your job. You can rest from all of that because Jesus invites us into the rest of his completed work on the cross. It means you can take a break when you need to. It means you can walk away when you need to. It means you can take a Sabbath when the Lord commands you because you are no longer working to please God. You're no longer working to please anyone else. You are no longer working to prove to God that you are good enough for him. You are working to please the Lord and to enjoy him. Our Sabbath rest is not about what we should or should not do on Sunday, but it's about the rest that God provides and the faithfulness that we depend on him. To fail to rest and to obey his Sabbath is a failure to rest in God and to enjoy him. We get to do this every week. We need to do this. We need Sunday when it comes around. We work faithfully in our jobs for the good of humankind, for the praise of God, and then we gather as his people to proclaim what? We're slaves to no one. And we belong to God who loves us. Let's pray.